Hello, language and culture lovers. This is Jules, your host of the All Things Iceland podcast. Welcome to this week's episode, which is part one of a two-part interview that I did with Andre Snyder Magnusson, an award-winning writer of novels, poetry, plays, and films. He's also a very active environmental advocate here in Iceland. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Andre in his home in Reykjavik to chat about his fascinating literary career, how he chooses what topics to write about, and so much more. We talked for about an hour and 45 minutes, so I decided to break up the episode into two parts. You'll hear me say in the beginning of this episode that I want to speak with Andre about Reykjavik being a UNESCO city of literature, but we don't get into that until the second part because he has so many interesting stories to tell during the first part. Some of them include stories about J.R.R. Tolkien, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and the Codex Regius, just to name a few. Also, I'm excited to announce that Andre's latest book, A Casket in Time, has been published in English and is now available for your reading pleasure. It is a young adult sci-fi novel that weaves together time travel and an environmental crisis for what looks like a captivating read. I've been reading The Story of the Blue Planet, another one of his books, and when I'm finished with that one, I'm looking forward to diving into A Casket in Time. If you want to check out his latest book, a link to it will be in the show notes of this episode on my website, fromforeigntofamiliar.com. Go the Skemtun! Andre, thank you for sitting down with me to chat about Reykjavik uh, being a UNESCO city of literature. And also we'll get a little bit into you and your personal background. Okay. But first I want to start out with asking uh, about the fact that you come from a family of doctors and nurses. I like how you put this in your bio. Yeah. And yet you ended up being, (laughs) becoming a a writer and a poet. So I'm just... Interested to know, like, why did you become interested in literature and then become a writer? Yeah, so all my family, my father's a doctor, my mother's a nurse, my wife's a nurse, my sister is a brain surgeon living in America. Nice. And my grandfather actually lives in America. Okay. In New Jersey. He was a very prominent surgeon in the New York Hospital. Wow, okay. Nice. Operated on the Iranian Shah in 79. Anti Warhol. Gotta be really careful there, right? <laughs> yes. like all these celebrities. Uh, and, and he told me outside there was a howling mob asking for the Shah's head. So, Whoa. So it's kind of epic. <laughs> and, and he also operated on uh, Oppenheimer. Okay. The father of the nuclear bomb. Yeah. And uh, you could say that that had some influence because you think. You know, you just come a bit, when you're a child, you come a bit closer to this. And and much of my work is kind of about something new bring, being brought in and uh, the consequences of that. It's mm-hmm. a good premise for sci-fi and, uh, and, and fiction. So I started writing. I actually flunked medicine. So oh, wait, so you were going to go into medicine and then were like, <laughs> no, nope. No. Well, I, I ended up uh, not paying as much attention as I should have, and yeah. uh, I was writing some story about the biology of the mermaid, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and a disappointed sailor after uh, he found lots of caviar in the sink. Or <laughs> uh, it was a stupid story. Yeah, so um, I always wanted, I, I very early 
just from my Lego years or something. I wanted to do something creative. Yeah. It could have been visual arts. It could have been, but I didn't really have maybe the guts for that. And I wasn't like this drawing child. So I wanted to be, maybe, you know, you could have wanted to be a filmmaker or something, but I thought that was kind of far-fetched. Yeah. And, and for all those things, you needed maybe some education or mm. skills before you started. So, While, so what are you saying about writing? <laughs> but, but writing, you could actually just make a poem. Yeah, instantly. And And if you were lucky, a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, can actually make a poem that kind of looks like a real poem, <laughs> while you could not make a short movie that looks like a real yeah, short movie. Okay. So, so you can actually express yourself at any age in a relevant matter, yeah, okay. while you maybe can't really do that in most other art forms. So I started writing, and uh, my first big accomplishment was uh, not winning a competition. And I heard later they thought that my poem was stolen. Wow, and you were was, too good. Yeah, no, so I was like, you know, it wasn't like the best poem in the world, but but it was good enough, so they thought it was stolen. Wow. So I thought, that's cool. They thought it was actually by a real writer. <laughs> a real <poem. laughs> so it made you feel good, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's better than just being the best in, you know, in your in your school, but, but being actually a poem by a real poet. Yeah. And then I started writing short stories, and then I was just reading a lot of stuff. I was reading, reading lots of uh, folklore. Mm. I'm much more inspired by folklore, for example, the Icelandic folklore tradition, than the, uh, the uh, Icelandic sagas, for example. Okay. And uh, more inspired by mythology, Nordic mythology and that stuff, right. and folklore, more of that, yeah. rather than the Icelandic sagas. And, and then just, there are loads of strange corners in Icelandic literary history. And I, I was working a whole summer in the archives of the Árni Magnusson Institute, yeah. which is a manuscript institute. So I, when I was maybe 22, and, and I was holding like the original copy of Codex Regius, the, uh, wow. the Poetic Edda, yeah, for a whole cool. summer. Yeah, it's like... Uh, carrying around Elvis Presley all day, you know. <laughs> so I was kind of starstruck when I saw it for yeah. the first time. And then in the basement, they had like 2,000 hours of old women reciting rhymes and lullabies and and stuff that was recorded in Iceland from 1903 to 1973. Okay. Just to preserve these. Yeah, too, because we changed so dramatically during the Second World War. Okay. And we still had, had traces and memories in families that could go like 400 years back. That's amazing. Yeah, so this was recorded just before kind of the last of this tradition died out. And and then, of course, my influence was also living in America as a child. Mm-hmm. I lived in Connecticut and New Hampshire mm-hmm. from three to nine. And then I kind of moved home to Iceland. And what was that like coming? It was like you're almost you're a foreigner kind of at that. Point. Yeah, yeah. So you get this. I think you get this kind of double. What is always needed for literature is you need the ability to see things in in more than one way. Right. And you need to be able to distance and alienate yourself from society. So Iceland was kind of behind at that time. Yeah. Uh, we're always a bit behind, but you maybe don't notice it today. I, I, maybe we're not today, but. At that time, we had no pizza places. We had yeah. no. We had 
the the TV station took a summer vacation. Yeah, I've heard about that, which I think is actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah. right? yeah, yes, like... that's what I thought. So when I moved to Iceland, I was like, wow, the TV station takes a summer vacation. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's cool because I I hated I I liked being outdoors and playing, and I hated it when my friends went in to yeah. watch something. So we had no morning cartoons. We had yeah. Once a week, I think we had a five-minute Tom and Jerry or something. That was kind of minutes, the weird. total entertainment. And we had no free radio, like uh, like talk show radio. We just yeah. had like one classic. Okay, so no NPR or anything like that? Or... It was kind of like NPR. Okay. Yeah. But uh, no, like, uh, yeah, so it was just very distinguished radio. It was like good radio. Okay. Only one, only, it's like okay. if you only had NPR. All right. Yeah. Not, that nothing would, else. That would be actually. So fun we had no pop radio or anything Got like it. that. Got it. Okay. So not like today where there are DJs on. No, 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 and, no, yeah, no. Okay. And so, we, about but, gossip, there, but there was maybe one program on Saturdays, okay. <laughs> which was uh, the uh, the popular songs of the young people. <laughs> so that was when, that was when that was when you could. So I moved home and and everything was and we didn't have any shopping malls or anything. Wow. And and so in a strange way, America kind of followed me, or like, uh, so I was kind of it was replaying, mm-hmm. and and I was, I could see that in a very ironic way, and also because I was a world citizen, I was like a, yeah. I was a sailed man, <laughs> <laughs> so I I thought it was kind of cool not to think it was cool that all this stuff was coming in. Got it. So I got this kind of ironic twist on things, because we were like. Uh, you know, we were like some kind of some primitive island people just being, you know, we were like a cargo cart. Yeah. <laughs> so like, we just like something came and yeah. with modernity and 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 uh, it just gave us lots of goods. Right. And we were like thirsty for it. But I, I kind of, I liked more of the quirkiness of it. And I had okay. been in America talking a lot about you know in Iceland we go skiing in the summer and <laughs> and swimming in the winter and yeah, and, uh, and we uh, have forever sun in the summer and no sun in the winter so I was just telling these stories and I almost had a fight once with a girl who said because she said Iceland was smaller than Texas and I said no it's not true which she was right actually. <laughs> you just don't want to believe that and it is hard to believe something like that right yeah. it's like because Texas it's part of something so much larger of course yeah. but Iceland is not tiny either so. no it's it's actually quite large it's almost the size of the UK yeah so so it was um, I think I just started very early on to imagine things and stuff and okay. then I got kind of attached to poetry first was your family encouraging of this? No. <laughs> okay. I was wondering. Yeah. I was like, all these doctors and nurses. Well, well, they would maybe encourage me to read. Okay. And uh, and then my father's friend is a poet. Okay. And he had been helping some young poets writing. And he, he gave me lots of uh, books and stuff. Okay. And poetry. And, and then I t- found out only many years later that uh, unintentionally I was kind of following the cutting edge of what was going on in Icelandic poetry. So, what was the cutting edge? Like, was it well, these were kind of young surrealist poets, and okay. uh, and just basically what, you know, the poets between twenty and thirty were self-publishing and stuff. So it was kind of like this feeling going around that yeah. if you were kind of attuned to it, even unknowingly. Yeah, but but I wasn't in any kind of 
group. Group. Okay. I was just a, I was just a, a jock or something, you know. Like no, I was just like playing soccer and going skiing, and I was good at math, and yeah. uh, so I would have gone to engineering probably. And yet you were aligning with some other like the, some other poets that were around your age group that were no those way. would I wouldn't know them I had never I had never seen a poet interesting okay yeah. so so it wasn't until I went to college that some of my friends were or one of my friends was writing poetry okay and we kind of sat together and I started to scribble and we were just instead of paying attention to school yeah okay. and then when I was twenty two. Uh, I already had like something that looked like a volume of short stories and poetry. Wow. And so you're writing quite a lot. Yeah, not maybe so much, but uh, enough to fill something <laughs> something with a very thin keel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, 50 poems, it's enough for a small poetry book. Okay. Then it was the question, you know, should I come out of the closet and be a poet and, and take responsibility? Right. Or should I just, you know, make this as a side thing and... Uh, and decide that, yeah, yeah, it's just this big decision, you know, do I want to come out? Yeah, am is I, being am I... a poet a respected job in Iceland? Like, do people well, look at you and go, yeah, he's an artist, actually, I get it. Actually, being a poet was at that time a bit like being uh, in an indie band today. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, so all the guys at the bars, mm -hmm. they had a poetry manuscript, <laughs> and, and the... The art of self-publishing mm -hmm. your first books and sell them downtown at the bars, and that 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 has always been a very strong culture here. That's fascinating. So I that was that. always respected, also, and kind That's of. That's very different in the U.S. I don't think anyone would be showing up with their poems to a bar, being like, "Hey, <laughs> you know, like it's yeah, just no, a very no, different no, or, idea." Or cafes, right? Stuff. Yeah, 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 but even still, yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. So, so you could say that even uh, many of the musicians wanted to be a poet, or it was quite common that this was regarded not as something completely marginal. Okay. So, so I self-published my first book, okay. and uh, and then of course I saw that, and it's a good boot camp, because you can't just go to a publisher, you know, you have to get, know, get to know the printer, you have to know the whole, get to know the whole process. You right. have to get to know the book binder, <laughs> and then you have to get the whole boxes of the books to your house, and then you have to know that poetry only sells in two shops. In <laughs> okay. Uh, but is then, it expensive to publish, like to get your books printed? No, it was like a thousand dollars for four hundred copies. Okay. And then I sold a thousand copies. So, oh, nice. so I paid my way through university. That's awesome. Poetry profit. <laughs> and at so, that time, were you still studying? Journalism? Yeah, I was. I was studying. I was studying Icelandic literature. Okay, Maybe so you switched from like I switched even from about medicine. Medical, yeah, yeah, okay. But most of my friends were in engineering and business and yeah. uh, economy and stuff like that. So you're that one artsy friend. So I, I no, but no, I was the only friend actually doing business. <laughs> ah, that's true. Good point. <laughs> I was selling. Uh, I was selling. You know, I was like, uh, I was like uh, in a in a mobster movie. I had shoe boxes full what? of full <laughs> of full, of full of thousand crowns. <laughs> it's like Mimi on the corner keeping that poetry book. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like uh, I went downtown and I sold like fifteen books and I saw this beautiful nice. dress and I 
parted with cash for my girlfriend. <laughs> so, so I was like, yeah, that I would maybe show up when my mother had a, a reunion. Okay. And by coincidence, there were 40 uh, women at my mother's house. Okay. And I actually had 50 books in my car. <laughs> and, but the good thing was that the book was actually quite popular. Nice. So, so, it, so people, I maybe was... Uh, Forcing them to buy it, but but then they would come back and maybe buy another or two more. Awesome. Okay. So so it is it only in Icelandic your first? Book that book? first book is almost only in Icelandic. Maybe one or two poems are in the English volume of bonus poetry. Okay, I smuggled them in there because they didn't have a, a home. So so then I was suddenly like a poet. So I, I had taken this book to a publisher, and mm-hmm. and the publisher was very kind of dry and. Not happy to see me, okay. and uh, okay. and you know I'm a 22 year old guy, you know, <laughs> who wants to publish poetry by some young boy. Yeah. Know? So he was like, talk to me in a few months if you don't hear from us. And he opened a big closet and threw it into the slush pile. Wow. And uh, but then I got a message from them. They had read my short stories, so they published my short stories the next year. Mm-hmm. And I made bonus poetry that year. Which was which I feel uh, like you have to explain this. Yes, bonus poetry. So that was kind of a literary prank or a stunt. The idea was to challenge maybe all the presumptions of being a poet. Okay. You know, I was supposed to be marginal. I was supposed to be an outsider. I was supposed to be frowned upon modernity. And I was supposed to write about death and uh, depression and self-harm or something. You know, like, you know, just the cliche. Right. Um, so, but I was, I had a very happy childhood, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was a bit worried that I might never be able to, you know, have anything to say. Okay. So uh, I was kind of uh, feeling still a bit left out. I was, uh, I was just living here in this neighborhood yeah. and I felt like I, you know, if I wanted to be an artist, I should be in Paris with mm. the nihilists. Uh, Drinking absinthe with the prostitutes, <laughs> you know, like my role models, and uh, and shooting af- elephants in Africa, oh or, or, or uh, hipstering around in Brooklyn, you know. Yeah, I mean that's you know, true. The, that's all right. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just do do like the real, you know, big artists. Yeah. You know, uh, be in Havana with a bottle of rum. Or <laughs> but I was just living here in this suburbia of Reykjavik. Uh, without even connection to the romantic landscape, the lava fields or anything. Right. So. So I was roaming around the ugliest place in Iceland, which is the Skavan area. It's close by. You can, <laughs> you can go there. And it's For anyone who's not been there, it's basically a bunch of shopping it's stores. It's like yeah. a horrible strip mall. And yeah. it's not well designed either to like get around in. So no, it's, it's, it's awful. It's and and, and there are no seasons in that place. Right, uh, yeah. There are no trees that indicate right. what season it is. Yeah. So, and I was thinking, it, wouldn't it be tempting to write about the ugliest places okay. you know isn't it in the power of the poet to transform areas you know was is paris actually beautiful or is it beautiful because the poets were hanging out and and making poetry about right, it yeah. and and new york is it the big apple what was it before somebody made the term the big apple right, yeah. and uh, so so i was thinking and lava for example in iceland was considered a wound in poetry. Mm-hmm. It was just considered a scar on the landscape. It was it was it was damage. Okay. It was not seen as beauty or 
anything worth anything. It was something that you owed to your forefathers and your children to level out <laughs> and and make a field out of it okay, and, and grow a crop. Or something. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, so until Kjarval, which is our national painter, he took the lava, mm-hmm. filled up a canvas and and suddenly we just came to terms with the lava and it became part of our identity. Yeah. So it's I was funny thinking, how things change like that. What? It? I said it's funny how things can change like that, yeah, transform and, into yeah, being and, and now it's super important part of your landscape. Exactly. And downtown Reykjavik, it was like a crummy, poverty-driven, tuberculosis, uh, <laughs> you know, like, a horrible place. Yeah, until, black plague. Like <laughs> <laughs> until, until some... Uh, until kind of the, the Reykjavik poet came and started making poems about places where yeah. that were considered not poetic. Okay. So I was thinking, what if I just go into that area and make poems about the ugliest area? You're basically doing it the Icelandic way, it sounds like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really yeah. In, yeah, in, in the trans... <laughs> and then, of course, the most obvious thing was the bonus supermarket, mm-hmm. which is kind of... And I, I started to think about that, and uh, the logo of the bonus supermarket... The pig. The pig. The pink pig. Yeah. Is is with this quirky, slightly sem- drunk looking, se- drunky, semi scoundrous. Uh, <laughs> I'll put al- a- almost a bit. Uh, yeah, kind of tipsy. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's a whole lot of emotions <laughs> going on there. I'll put a picture in the show notes because I think it is a really. Every time someone comes yeah. here, they're like, "What is wrong with that pig?" And yes. I was just like, "I don't yeah. know." But but, yeah. but I think he will be the Hello Kitty of Iceland. No, no. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> they were going to be walking around with their back on their yeah. backpacks with the bonus but pig. <laughs> there's something about the pig that you know you, the, the loco is. There's something about it, and everything in bonus is bonus. It's bonus yeah. bread, bonus cola, bonus ham, bonus everything. And yeah. I thought, if we're a nation of great poetry, why don't we have bonus poetry? So, uh, so uh, I designed the cover. This and, is and, and like everybody that knows a poet knows, first they make the cover. And then they make poems that kind of look like the cover. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so then I saw that bonus was divided exactly like the Divine Comedy by Dante. Mm. So I start in Paradiso, the fruit division. <laughs> it's different levels. <laughs> you go to Inferno, the meat products, and oh then you end God. in the Purgatory, the cleaning products. The cleaning products of Purgatory. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. And uh, and then then I just also saw that we don't have a public square in Iceland. You know, we don't. In Reykjavik, we don't live like in a, in an old European city yeah. where everybody meets and has an espresso in the yeah. in the square. I mean, there's English talk, but it's not really. Yeah, but it's but yeah. we're basically suburbia. Yeah. You know? So. So actually, bonus is the only common experience <laughs> that everyone has, because everybody goes to their job and to their school, but everybody goes, yeah. and this is the only really shared experience. Maybe the swimming pools. And maybe the soccer stadium or something, but okay. but basically this is the real shared experience. So there was actually a deeper level to. Of course, poetry belongs in this place, and then it has even a deeper level of. My grandfather, when he was hungry, he had to kill something, you know. That's it's only one generation away, right. and he knew everything. That he killed, you know, either either the name of the lambs or or. Or the name of a cow he had, yeah. or that he had to milk, or or he knew where the fish and the birds were hiding that he could catch. Right. So so just this, and when he was doing this, of course, all that area would be 
filled with some kind of second meaning history, mythology, you had to pray to God to survive, <laughs> you know, the trip over the dangerous mountains or right, something. Yeah. So so suddenly I live in this generation and when I'm hungry, I just go to bonus. Yeah. And, and get a pre-made sandwich if, it's, if yes, it existed yes. at that time. I don't know if they were doing it the same. Yeah, we had, we had them. Yeah. Yeah. The roast beef sandwich. <laughs> yeah, so, so then I finished this pile of books, uh, of poems, and uh, con- kind of consumer-based poetry. Okay. Uh, the idea, or the maybe tongue-in-cheek idea, that it, it was a new genre, that is, because every ideology comes with poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the church came with the hymns, and mm-hmm. nationalism, or like nation-building came with, you know, um, national anthems right, and you know exactly and, right. and uh, pledge of allegiance pledge of allegiance yeah. and everything comes with poetry and, right. and then we live in this big capitalist era we had social realism or, mm-hmm. and but then we live in this capitalist era and the poems are not you know cheering <laughs> they're not like they're not like uh, marching along right so i thought how would a book of capitalist realism look like <laughs> Sold by That's the counter yeah. on an eternal special offer, maybe five minutes. Eternal special offer. <laughs> and uh, and uh, disposable, maybe, in a way. Okay. So so then I took the book to the owner of Bonus, and he he uh, really liked the cover. Okay. Because uh, it featured the pig? Or yeah, it yeah. has the logo on the cover yeah. and <laughs> not even my name on it. So so they published it and sold wow. it by the counter, and it became a bestseller. Nice. And Congratulations. Yeah, it sold like, uh, I think, 500 pounds of poetry or something. Nice. And you got a free copy if you bought 30 pounds of pork. Oh my God, okay. So, uh, so it was... So you had a discount associated with <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a stunt. And then I was 23. Yeah. And I had suddenly published three books. So a short story collection, bonus poetry, and my first book of poetry. Okay. So I started very early, and, and like I said, I, that I never took a student loan or anything. I, I bought myself an apartment when I was what? 26, and that was all poetry profit. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> I think it's a, and very unexpected. I was, yeah, I thought you were going to be like, you know, sleeping on your mom's couch. No, and being no. like so, 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 <laughs> so there were no struggling years. Yeah. It was just, uh, it went very fast. And then... Then I had a child, and and I was maybe a bit double-edged about the bonus poetry. Mm. I was making fun of them, but I was just giving them lots of good credit, and uh, and I was wondering like, okay, why do you write? And and I was kind of, I was pregnant, or my wife was pregnant, and I was like, thinking about the world and yeah. all that stuff, and and. Uh, you know, bringing a child into the world, and I was just thinking about. I was actually also thinking I was too young to have a child <laughs> because I was like twenty-four or something. Yeah, okay, yeah. And uh, and but I was also thinking about children's culture a lot and children's literature, fairy tales and uh, stuff like that. And at that time, there was this kind of siege upon the highlands of Iceland, where mm. many of the most beautiful places in Iceland were going to be destroyed for uh, international aluminum smelters. Oh, what? And, and I didn't have any, like, experience in activism. And actually, we had gone through, like, these 10, 15 years after the Cold War. Yeah. Where kind of, 
there was no activism happening. Everything was kind of going in the right way. Yeah. Woman president, woman mayor, uh, and all all the activism was kind of just almost like institutionalized. You know, mm. just things were just basically, you know, there was somebody not on the streets protesting, there was somebody worked in the system, in, in the system just it, yeah. changing it. So nice. it wasn't like you have to go to the street. Which is a nice, you know, that would be nice if that's how it happened most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But. but that's kind of how I felt it was going. And, yeah. and then, uh, so I wasn't sure there was something wrong and I didn't really know how to write about it. Okay. I didn't really find an output. And, uh, you know, how do you write about something important? (laughs) And then I was working in these archives and I was listening to these old lullabies and kind of the darkness of the old fairy tales. And at the same time, uh, I was reading a stupid thinned out version of Winnie the Pooh for my son. Okay. Where he caught a fish and the fish looked at Winnie the Pooh and he said, don't eat me, Winnie the Pooh. So he released the fish and roasted a hot dog instead. So it's already something that's been pre-packaged. Because because everybody knows a hot dog is not an animal. (laughs) And the gory subtext, uh, where is Piglet, was not Mm, part of the irony. (laughs) So so I was thinking of my grandfather and and when he was like eating a seal head or something, you know, like, like this really raw nature that... My but he had put in the effort to catch. Yeah, he caught it himself, right. and, and they only caught, yeah, yeah they only caught baby seals <laughs> because <laughs> because he can't catch like a grown-up seal yeah. because a grown-up seal has survived and is strong and will survive many more winters, yeah. while the baby seal will ninety percent die the first year anyway, in some in some way, so. So that was the rule of the North. You okay. Know, the, <laughs> like, like, it's going to die anyway. It's, like, it's <laughs> like you don't kill the cow, you, you kill the offspring. Mm. And that's just the brutality of nature. Yeah. So I was, uh, but I was really inspired just by this wildness uh, and then mythology too. So I was working in the archives and I was putting on display the Codex Regius. Okay, yeah. Like the original copy of... Nordic mythology. Yeah, it's awesome. It was a tiny institute. There was there were no guests there, and and I, but I was so aware of how big it was. You yeah. know, in a normal marketing economy, there should be a, like a one kilometer line to see it. But <laughs> but the medieval specialists were not good at marketing, so okay. so there was no guests, and I was alone with with the, the original copy wow. of of Nordic mythology for a whole summer. That's intense. And it was the same week as I held my son for the first time. I had oh, so this, you had these like <laughs> I had this old skin of nine hundred year old text yeah. in my hands, and it, that really twisted me. And I was thinking of mythology, how the sun and the moon and all the elements can play part in mythology, yeah. and how our planet, that is, how short it was since we started living on a planet. It's only about five hundred years since mm. we actually started living on a planet. And mythology only has disc worlds, you know, some kind of Middle Earth, and then then it just fades yeah. into some kind of vagueness, and 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 the creatures be, just go, become more brutal as far they come from the center, yeah. and 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 more worth killing or something, you know, like trolls and 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 uh, giants and stuff, you know, like <laughs> the others, it's just easily disposable, <laughs> so. But I was just thinking of, but actually, in reality, we live on a planet with equally valuable humans all around the planet. So I started writing the story of the blue planet, mm-hmm. which is a children's book. 
which is about a crazy traveling space vacuum cleaning salesman coming to a planet and putting a nail in the sun to give the children of the blue planet eternal happiness. Mm-hmm. And then he teaches them how to fly by flicking the dust off the butterfly's wings so they can fly in the sunshine. And then the two children are blown by the wind and they land on the other side of the planet that is completely dark. Mm. And uh, and I was 24 when I started it. And were you inspired by having a child to write this book? Or was yeah. it just, you know... No, so basically inspired by having a child, but also inspired by... I was thinking of what survives. So I had this 900-year-old book in my hands. Yeah. And, and I could read the text. And I was kind of thrilled of the idea, you know, what survives? You know, mm-hmm. what, what lives that you write? Why do things live? What kind of things live? Um, and... Uh, and also mythology, how you can use the sun and the moon and all that stuff yeah. to explain big things. And I was worried about all sorts of stuff and inspired by my grandfather's story about this guy that split the atom, which is yeah. kind of the um, only mythological character of the 20th century, like the only true mythological right. Prometheus of the 20th century. <laughs> so I was just piling all these things up and my wild grandparents living up north and I was just taking it all in and I was thinking when you die you will think about the 10 books that mattered in your life and five of them would probably be children's books mm-hmm. you know the books that really installed something right, into yeah. you know, like uh, for me it could be Astrid Lindgren mm-hmm. Michael Ende Momo yeah okay might be The Little Prince or it might be folklore or uh, or some fairy tales yeah and uh, and and also, uh, yeah, the, uh, another strange family connection. My grandfather's sister, uh, she was the nanny for Tolkien. Really? Yeah, in, in, <laughs> Interesting. In, in 1930. Okay. And I was kind of, first I was a bit uh, ashamed that I had not read Tolkien. <laughs> but, but then I understood that when I was in these archives that yeah. I was being inspired by the exact same source. As he was. So, Which uh, I guess also just to kind of, you know, think about how fascinating Icelandic literature is to people, right? So it's inspired different people from around the world to yeah. kind of like create their own stories. And I think that is something that a lot of people probably recognize to some degree, but have no idea how deep like, it can like go. Marvel Comics would be nothing if they couldn't have Uh-oh. Ragnarok. Uh-oh. <laughs> 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 they didn't have the Codex Regius. <laughs> They, they wouldn't have any stories to tell. Yeah. Or maybe some other stories. <laughs> See, it's like a little biased, but that's okay. <laughs> they wouldn't have Hulk. <laughs> I was really determined that I wanted to write like a really good children's book. Yeah. And uh, also inspired by being bored by reading for my child lots of really bad children's books. Fair enough. And, uh, and that's the, a good inspiration, actually. Yes. <laughs> and so I wrote the story of the Blue Planet, and I was very kind of determined and it sounds like I had some kind of a hebris or something but when my family was asking you have to hurry to the publisher I said it's it uh, no no worries it will be published all over the world mm. uh, did you know. really feel that yes and okay. and, uh, and in my application for the artist's uh, grant mm. I say that I'm writing a classic children's book <laughs> that will be reprinted for 200 years wow you're just planting the seed basically you're like oh, uh, well, like... well but but that also of course it would, of course, be nonsense if it was only 
self-happiness or like mm. self-esteem. Yeah. But that, of course, put more pressure on me of asking people, okay, how's the book? Right. And they said, it's cute. Ooh. It's like, what do you mean by cute? <laughs> yeah, you're really, really, you know, I could never write 100 pages. Wow, you you wrote 100 pages. That's like a lot <laughs> of pages. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yes. But is it a good story? No, well, it's a good beginning. Oh, wow. But okay. So finally I found a really evil woman um, at the publishing house. And and the, the manuscript came back like it went through Halloween 12 or something. You know, Whoa. like just splats, Red, splats, yeah. splats, splats, <laughs> And I had to swallow my pride on every page. Was it like, good criticism though? Yes, very good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, banal, it was too, too long, repetitive. Uh, simple character, you know all this stuff that yeah. uh, even the even my masterpiece chapter, you know, like the grand masterpiece chapter, yeah. was was also like something I had to throw away. Okay. And but I also went through it in my own mind. That is, I took everything that I noticed that was kind of banal because there's so much on cruise control when you write a fairy tale, or mm-hmm. I just twisted it all, and. And then finally I had a friend read it and he came back to me two hours later mm. and he was like, yeah, this is it. This is it. Yeah. Did it, was it. So was it one more redo or was it just like mini? It's just, just, just like, just, like just, massaging going, it just massaging it. it. It's like, there's no formal yeah. second version. It's just going through. Okay. <clears throat> it's like wax on, wax off. Yeah. It still starts to feel right to you. Basically. Yes. Yes. So, so. And it, 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 I mean, obviously, it's been super popular. It has been published in, what, I think 30 different languages? Yes, yeah, so now yeah. it's in 30 languages, yeah. 35 maybe. And the play is always coming up somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. and, uh, it's, and, um, Do you ever go to like other countries just to see your play? Yeah, I've gone all over. Nice. It's been in like 12 countries or something. Is that bizarre, though, sometimes to go and, like, you know, hear yeah. it in this different language? And <laughs> yeah, it's, it, can be, it can be really, really nice. It can be a bit strange if it's a strange production. Yeah. It can be... Um, at the time, I was like, I shouldn't go to premieres because I would see things that I might want to, you know, I would, <laughs> and it's too late yeah. to give any notes. How do you so, take your so why am I, hat why off? Why am I, uh, why am I here? You know, out of respect, if, I would hope. Out of yeah. respect, but but yeah. if I can't, I would have maybe the urge to have a creative input. But yeah. but most of the time, ninety nine percent, it it was really good. Okay. And just fun to you know meet the people and sometimes I worked with the theater. Nice. So especially in Toronto, it was two really good productions that have been there. Nice. So I mean, we already talked. There were some questions that I had about like what inspires your poetry, but you you know really kind of delved <clears throat> into a lot of that. Yeah, but but the writers would be like you know Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. uh, Calvino, yeah, Primo Levi. Those were kind of imaginative writers without being deep sci-fi. Okay, and these are people you were reading in your younger in years. In my twenties, in yeah. my twenties, okay. yeah. So those would be, uh, yeah, imaginative, but but. This was kind of before the big the sci-fi cult has been like uh, growing a lot in the last years. Yeah, and uh, and this would be more like literary imaginative, like, okay. uh, and then lots of Eastern European sci-fi. Interesting. Like Bulgakov uh, and Stanislav Lem, yeah. and and uh, lots of that stuff. Yeah. And and nineteen eighty four, of course. Yeah. And then so 
I had made a book of poetry that became very popular, and people wanted more poetry, so I made a children's book. Okay. And that book actually won the Icelandic Literary Award. Yeah. Which I'm not just bragging; it's just a fact. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. You can be proud of your accomplishments. So, and then I was just 25. You know, I was yeah. really young when I won that award. Yeah, it's like. And by far the youngest that I've ever won it. Like every year, you're pretty much doing something different. It sounds like. <clears throat> yeah. So then my next book was Love Style, which is sci-fi, more in this wonderful genre of, mm. of sci-fi. And then suddenly I had this reputation or career of betraying my audience. That is, mm. that when people wanted another poetry book, I made a children's book. When they wanted another children's book, I made sci-fi that children can't understand. <laughs> And then when people wanted a new uh, sci-fi, I made non-fiction, which was Dreamland. And this is mainly just because you were going with what you felt like writing at the time and trying not to be burdened by expectations? Or was it some yeah. other in, in, in some way, it's not to repeat yourself. Mm, okay. Maybe in some way to avoid comparison to recent success. Okay. In most ways, still because I could not really write anything else. Or like, you know, the, because yeah. just the times called for that output. Okay. So I felt the world needed a good children's book. So that's like a concept. I felt like poetry was needed into the yeah. into the void of Skavan. Uh, <laughs> the void of Skavan. <laughs> the big black hole. Yeah. And then uh, needed some light. And then, uh, and then when I had finished Love Star... Things were going so out of hand, yeah. and this was kind of in the lead to the economic collapse that I felt a bigger need to write about reality, and right. and I was becoming more and more activist, okay. and maybe even angry. Mm. I mean, especially if you can feel the tension. But I think that's just really interesting, though, that you're essentially going with what you want to do because yeah. in, a, in, a, in an effort kind of like you said not to get stuck in being like maybe the poet for yeah. instance, or yeah. the children's yeah. book author yeah. or yeah. whatever because that can like you mentioned be really hard to live up to your next book comes out as a children's book and they're like ah but you know the yeah, well, planet was great yeah. <laughs> like, it was really good what yeah. happened yeah. right so no, and it's also basically it's kind of about there's a great visual artist friend of mine yeah. he said he was a master of very banal uh, wisdom. Okay. <laughs> so, well, like, uh, he was he was working for an ad agency and looking for a slogan for the milk company. Okay. And he came two months later with the slogan, milk is good. Oh, no. <laughs> and they went with that? <laughs> yeah, they went with what? that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and it was the slogan for the milk company for many milk years. Milk is good. Milk is good. <laughs> and uh, and okay. he said... He said uh, Notice what you notice. Mm. And and that's something that you don't always notice. So, you know, maybe your mind is somewhere, you know, in something, mm-hmm. you know, can be anything, uh, football or knitting or, or, you know, but you don't feel like you're supposed to put that into, you know, you're supposed to think about something else. Right, know? yeah. And, uh, and maybe something you're not as good as at thinking about. So... Your mind is always there yeah. in football and knitting, while you feel like you should be like writing this three-generation family story in the Midwest or something like, <laughs> which every, you know, like, a, like, yeah. a, like, like every fourth-year-old writer should do, you know. Apparently, yeah. okay. So, 
so this notice, what you noticed was that I had like dams, aluminum, nature, yeah. destruction on my mind, economy and all this economic speak. Yeah. But I felt like I should be writing about, you know, my, my I should be coming out with my, my, my grand novel, you know, at mm, that time. Okay. I hope you enjoyed listening to part one of my interview with Andre. Part two will be published next week. So make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss updates about when new episodes are available. Thakathier kailegar firir at hlusta og shamst plotlega. Mm-hmm.